Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Well, welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church and welcome to the first Sunday of Advent. Today is actually the beginning of the church calendar when we begin to tell the story of Jesus all over again in a way that it washes over us, it immerses us, and it makes our salvation sink that much deeper. I love how... um, you know, almost revolutionary the church calendar feels, um, that we, we so often determine where we're at in a day, a week, a month, whatever it might be, by all of the circumstances that are around us and all the news. But I feel like the church calendar is one of these, uh, these really blessed um, uh, symbols that we have in the church that keeps us grounded to God's story being the center of our lives and not the circumstances of the day. And so over the next four Sundays, we're going to be entering into this Advent season, with the Advent meaning coming or arrival, as we anticipate the nativity story, the birth of Jesus. But we anticipate it in a way that we're making it come alive for us all over again. And today, we're going to be talking about hope. Because I believe that we can only lay claim to real expectant hope through perseverance. And so, like I said, Advent means coming or arrival. And what this season does is it invites us to enter into the hearts and the minds of those before the time of Jesus who were waiting, that Israel was in this long period of darkness, waiting for God to fulfill the promises that he had made through Abraham and Moses. And the prophets are those who are calling Israel to remain faithful, even especially in those dark times. Because it, this is, and this is why we begin the season in darkness by lighting a single candle that represents us holding on to hope in the midst of difficulty. And so this promise that God gives to rescue the whole world through Israel begins with this covenant that he makes with our forefather Abraham. And as the story progresses, we see a people that are continually wrestling with trying to stay faithful, trying to be patient and to wait on Yahweh to do what he says he's going to do, rather than just walking away and taking matters into our own hands. Um, And if you think, you know, it's been hard waiting eight months in the middle of a pandemic uh, for everything to go back to normal, imagine having to wait 400 years, because that's what we find between the end of the Old Testament era with... um, you know, Nehemiah and Ezra coming back to Israel after exile, building uh, the temple, and the wait until um, this Messiah, this promised anointed king, was going to return and put the world to right. And in that time, what we find is that Israel herself gave herself gave over to despair. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, despair means the fear that tomorrow is just going to be like today. It's the status quo. It's nothing ever really changes. Everything is, is as it's going to be. And this led Israel into prolonged periods of feeling numb, just a, a bland acceptance of the status quo. But these prophets come along, first of all, to teach Israel how to feel the reality of their own stories. 
Because what the prophets teach us is that in order for you to genuinely begin to hope, you first have to learn how to grieve, how to come to this recognition that things don't have to be this way. And when we enter into that process of grieving and lamenting and feeling again, beginning to see the injustice of the world around us and the injustice in our own lives, we're able to turn towards God and ask him to give us a vision of what this looks like when he finishes what it is that he started through uh, Jesus. And that openness, in that openness, God gives us a vision for his desires. And so when we anticipate Christmas, the birth of Jesus, what we're doing is we're recognizing that hope began as a vulnerable baby born 2,000 years ago in the Middle East in an occupied territory. And that that baby grew up to preach the good news of the kingdom to the poor. But that it became a threat to the powerful Because power structures in our world thrive on keeping us hopeless, of keeping us in despair, that tomorrow is just going to be like today and nothing can ever change, nothing can ever break free, nothing can ever grow. And it's amazing when we enter into the New Testament, when we see the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and then the resulting revolution of these followers of Jesus in that first century, and what they were writing, that hope actually becomes central to their lives. It becomes one of the main qualities that we see in the midst of those early Jesus followers, even though they're being persecuted by the empire, where they're starving, where they're seeing families ripped apart. They're in tremendous trial, but hope remains central to their beliefs that God is continuing to work in the world. And one of the passages that we've actually looked at at the beginning of the last series is in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And I love this passage. It's so dense, and it's one of those where it's like, especially if you grew up in church, there's a lot of churchy words, and you can kind of glaze over, and you lose the radical nature of what it is that Paul's saying. Um, so if, if we slow down and really listen to what Paul is trying to tell us, we're going to recognize something pretty amazing about hope that I think speaks so beautifully to the moment that we find ourselves in now in 2020, but also what it means for the season of Advent. And so this is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And this is the bit. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. My goodness, we could break down just those five verses almost like, you know, line by line and make an entire series just out of that. But here's kind of the summation of what Paul is saying. We have been declared... As part of God's covenant family, we have peace with him, we have togetherness with him, relationship with him. And because of that, 
the faithfulness of Jesus that's earned that for us. We boast in the hope of the glory of God, which means we are confident that God is real and present and will continue to be down the road. And that hope gives us the courage to continue to move on. But I think what's so powerful, especially in this passage, is this little connection that Paul makes when it comes to suffering to hope. And he says this, that suffering produces perseverance, that steadfastness, that commitment to stay in the fight, to stay in the mix, to continue to participate, especially when it doesn't feel like it's going right, especially when it feels like we don't have the right answers. But that perseverance of sticking with it begins to build in us character. Whose character? Jesus' character begins to give us the quality to be little Christs that our suffering is actually breeding out of us all of our unchrist-like qualities and replacing them with Christ-like ones. And over time, that character prepares us to be able to receive true and genuine hope. And what strikes me so much about this passage is that if hope is not marked by a hard-earned patience in the midst of trial, can we even call it hope? You see, a lot of times when you and I, when we're talking about hope, we say things like, oh, I hope it uh, doesn't rain tomorrow, or uh, I really hope that I get to see my parents next week. We talk about hope as if it's just general aspirations we have for what the future might hold. But for the early Christians, hope was actually a deep-seated confidence in who God is and that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And so when we reorient to that kind of hope, it gives us a new understanding for the perseverance that we're being challenged to, because that's what Paul is doing. Even right now in 2020, with everything we're going through, Paul is challenging you. He's saying, hey, are you going to persevere or not? Are you going to give up and walk away because it's too hard? Or are you going to stay true to the faith that has been won for you in Jesus? Because there's something on the other side for you in that. And perseverance in the midst of trial, it strips us of our desire to define what we think hope is supposed to be. It strips us of our desire to, to build a better future or, or, or for us to determine what we think justice is and how the world should work. And as we persevere, because if, if we're honest, that's what happens. When we don't get our way, we just want to walk away. And we never learn the lessons of staying in it. That as we persevere, it's stripping us of our need to define hope. And it begins to open us up to what God actually means. And so hope is not something that you and I can manufacture. You know, some of you, maybe you can mention this in the chat, like, you know, whether you're an optimist or you're a pessimist, but optimism and pessimism are both manufactured cheap versions of hope that we're already framing the future so that we know how to handle it. Whether you're an optimist and you believe everything's going to get better and, and if I have a plucky can-do attitude, I'm just going to live into that, that goodness. Or if you're a pessimist and say everything's terrible and it's going to continue to be terrible, what you're doing is you're, you're actually, in whether you're an optimist or pessimist, you're inoculating yourself to actual Christian hope. But when we persevere, when we begin to let go of those coping mechanisms of optimism and pessimism, we become a little bit more open-handed to receive something that's a bit more God-shaped, 
and less human-shaped. And our hope as Christians, it's not this kind of stoic surrender to fate, to say, well, come what may, whatever it is, I'm not going to feel anything, and I'm, I'm just going to kind of remove myself from the mix. That's not what Paul meant by hope. But it's also not this passionate struggle to create utopia, of taking matters into our own hands. Because we know that that's a fool's errand. Again, it's that illusion of control and that we can just make things the way that we want them to. Being kind of one of the original sins of humanity when we go all the way back to Babylon. Well, we'll just do it on our own and that'll basically be the same thing as what God wants for us. Now, hope is the commitment to see the God of history restore all things through Jesus. We don't manufacture hope. It's only a gift that we can receive once we have persevered and have been formed to look, think, and feel and act more like Jesus. And so where do we get this confidence from? Where do we, where do we have this vision of the future that we say we believe this is what is the end result of history as opposed to just kind of casting our desires into the wind? Well, we come to a passage like Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. So see, I prepped you last week uh, for the apocalypse um, on how to read Revelation well. And this is, again, another beautiful and powerful image that we have of what this thing, where it's all headed where history is going because Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord over all the universe. This is Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be more with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Do you ever read bits of the Bible and it just feels too good to be true? Well, that's what I feel about this passage. This idea of the new heavens and the new earth. Not that we're scrapping the earth, it's all getting burned up and thrown in the waste bin and we're just going to float away to the clouds, but actually that God is rescuing and redeeming all of creation itself and heaven and earth are being um, sewn back together through the work of Christ and that we get to live in this complete intimate relationship with God and that there won't be any more crying or pain or suffering when God finishes what he started through the work of Jesus on the cross. And I love the audacity of the whomever is giving John this vision to say, write this down because this is trustworthy and true. This is the real stuff. This is where it's all going. I love to quote Billy Graham. He says, I, you know, I read the last page of the book and it's all going to turn out okay. And it's audacious to have that kind of hope when we experience a year like we're experiencing now. But as Christians, we are called to hold tightly to that vision 
and to allow that to guide how we live today, what faithfulness means, because we know where we're headed. In 1944, in Nazi Germany, a young man by the name of Jürgen Moldman was conscripted. He was drafted into the German army, much against his will. And he was immediately placed on the front lines. And young Jürgen, uh, he was, uh, I think he was 30 at the time. No, he was, sorry, he was 21 at the time. Um, surrendered to the first British soldier that he came across in the front line. And he was put into a concentration, or not a concentration camp, but a, um, he was taken as a prisoner of war uh, by the Allies, and he was in this camp for three years. And Jürgen had grown up um, as an avowed atheist, um, didn't believe in God, didn't have any sense of religion. And while he was in this camp, they posted pictures from the concentration camps for these German soldiers all over the camp so they could see what was actually being done. And at first they couldn't believe that this was actually true, that this is what their government had been doing. But over time they came to accept that they had been complicit in the work that Nazi Germany had been doing to extinguish the Jews. And Moltmann had, he writes about having this immense sense of remorse and hopelessness that he wanted to end his life because he recognized what he had been part of, what he had participated in without knowing that it was genuinely true. But it was in that camp that he actually came to know uh, some Christians and a young British chaplain actually gave him a copy of the New Testament. And Jürgen Moltmann gave his life to Christ, although the way he says it is, I didn't find Christ, he found me. And he had immediately developed an affection for theology, and he went and studied and became a pastor, and then eventually became a theologian. In the 1960s, he wrote a book called The Theology of Hope, where he talks about this audacious, insistent sense of hope. And he says, I began to understand the assailed Christ. This is him reflecting on his time in that, in that uh, prison of war camp. I began to understand the assailed Christ because I felt that he understood me. This was the divine brother in distress who takes the prisoners with him on his way to resurrection. I began to summon up the courage to live again, seized by a great hope. And what he writes in that book borrows from this image in Revelation. He says, it is the God of the future who calls into this present moment and says, behold, I'm making everything new. Behold, I'm making everything new. I'm making everything new. I'm making everything new. And it's the God of hope. It's the God of this future certainty that we have. When we incline our ear to hear his voice, we begin to recognize him calling back into this present moment to work in our lives today. That we are not aimlessly wandering. We are not giving up and sitting in despair. But that we are persevering because we know where it is that he's taking us. And so what do we do when we feel hopeless? I want to encourage you with this, brothers and sisters. It's okay to feel hopeless. That's why God has given us reinforcements. Hope is the desire. And I even recognizing in that passage in Romans 5, Paul's saying, you don't start with any hope. There's just suffering. But eventually there's perseverance and eventually there's character. And then there's hope on the other side of that. And it's quite normal for you to feel hopeless. That's not an indictment against your faith. 
Your faith is you continuing to participate, to show up when you feel hopeless and to allow other people to hold hope on your behalf when you need it. But ultimately to recognize that the spirit of Jesus living in you right now is holding space for that hope that you yourself can't lay claim to. That's okay. I think the challenge is even in those times of feeling hopeless, of feeling despair, that we continue to immerse ourselves in prayer and in scripture, in fellowship with other believers that we talk about what we're feeling, what we're experiencing. We allow other people to advocate for us in that. We talk it out. It's okay to let hope be ugly and wrestled for, to point at the atrocities in life and to say, this isn't okay. I'm not okay with this. To shake your fist at God and say, God, you better do something about this. I'm not okay with this. And I have a sneaking feeling you're not okay with this either. And that changes our prayers because they're motivated by real, genuine, gritty, dirt under your fingernails hope. What we remember ultimately in this Advent season is that we're called to a holy waiting just like Israel and the prophets for 400 years, waiting for God to fulfill his promises. We are sitting in that space now, waiting for God to fill his promises to us. But we don't do it with despair because we know where it's going. So what I want us to do is I want us just to enter into a very simple spiritual practice of learning how to wait in a sacred way. We're just going to sit here for 30 seconds. That's it. That's what we're going to do. But I want you to pray this most foundational of prayers while you sit quietly. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's just take 30 seconds and let's just wait on the Lord saying, Come, Lord Jesus. God of hope, we thank you for what it is that you have accomplished through your son Jesus, what you are accomplishing even in this moment when we can't see it, and what you will accomplish for us in the future. Give us that confidence that we so desperately need to persevere in the midst of suffering, sadness, in the midst of the tears in the midst of the pain. Be with us. Guide us through. When we are hopeless, may you hope on our behalf until we have been shaped, formed, to look like Jesus. And may we have such a vision of hope to see the restoration of all things that it gives us a deep, deep sense of history and where you're taking us. We pray all of these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.